You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. When the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was poisoned with Novichok nerve agent on his flight to Moscow, all signs pointed to the Russian intelligence services. It was soon obvious that investigating the attempted murder was not in the interest of the government that was possibly behind it, and so the journalists took matter into their own hands. The Insider and Bellingcat released an extraordinary investigation that unmasked Navalny's assassins, a team of FSB agents that included doctors and toxicologists. FSB stands for Federal Security Services, for those who don't know. But this was not the first time the Russian intelligence services deployed poison to get rid of their political opponents. One of the examples that immediately comes to mind is, of course, the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal in the UK back in 2018. In their new investigation, the insider made a connection between Navalny's assassins and the mysterious death of journalist Timur Kuashev and activist Ruslan Magomedragimov, both from Northern Caucasus, and politician Nikita Isayev, once close to Kremlin. So um, we actually found that the team of uh, poisoners of FSB is bigger than we thought. This is Roman Dabrakhotov, one of the journalists behind the investigation. I asked him about his findings and how on earth he made links between different murders. Uh, in the, our first part, we found seven uh, members of uh, this uh, killer squad. Um, all of them were from um, so-called uh, two, or like scientific institution number two uh, of FSB, which is responsible for like um, inventing uh, special technologies for FSB, Russian Security Service. But actually what they're doing is just working on different poisons of different means to kill people. So that can be some radioactive stuff like polonium with which Litvinenko was murdered in uh, London, or that can be Novichok or some other poisons. And in here in our next part, we saw that actually the, another poison was used. So we found three different murders, um, two on North Caucasus, uh, one in uh, Tambov. Uh, so two of them were uh, Russian um, human rights watchers and uh, journalists. And the third guy who was killed in Tambov was actually a very loyal um, Russian politician, which is very strange and we can discuss it later. But uh, in uh, all cases, uh, we suppose that the poison was different. It, it was not Novichok that was used against uh, Navalny and possibly uh, many other people. Uh, why we think so is that because um, the two guys on uh, North Caucasus, which are uh, Timur uh, Kuashev, who is a journalist and a human rights activist, uh, who lived in Nalchik, and... Um, also, um, he has a very complicated name, even, even for me. Ruslan Magomedragimov. Ruslan Magomedragimov, yes. He uh, was also an activist who was uh, supporting autonomy of Lesgin uh, nationality, which is a, uh, one of nationalities uh, on North Caucasus. Uh, they have their own language, their own culture. So he was kind of advocate of uh, unity of uh, this nationality on uh, North Caucasus. So 
Um, he was even not uh, a protester or a politician. He was just for this cultural and national autonomy of these people. Um, and both of them were uh, killed with um, some poison that was injected uh, through, how you call it, spritz? Um, um, with a syringe. Syringe? Syringe. So, uh, so uh, the poison was uh, in syringe, so it cannot be in Novichok because you never use syringe uh, when you uh, use Novichok. But there were some uh, small dots, uh, like traces of uh, syringe on their body uh, after they died. But officially, they both died uh, because of some natural reasons. Although in both cases, we see like millions of details that are proving that this was not actually uh, natural reasons. Let's take, for example, Timur Kuashov, this young, uh, I think he was 25 years old journalist who was absolutely healthy, very sportive guy. And um, he was a journalist uh, who wrote a lot about uh, corruption and uh, and uh, human rights violation. And the main topic he w- worked at at this moment, in uh, 2014, uh, was on a trial against um, uh, people who revolted against uh, the government in Nalchik in 2005. Uh, so th- this was, uh, th- they, they, they used guns, so it was like a real, um, wanted to prove that uh, this was al-Qaeda standing behind them. So they made this big trial and they, and actually there is no evidence that al-Qaeda or some real big terrorist groups were standing behind these people. But uh, they wanted to prove it. That's why they, um, as many people suppose, they just falsified a lot of uh, evidence and uh, a lot of actually innocent people were also brought to court. So that was uh, not a fair trial, as Timur thought. He wrote a lot about the trial. He went to um, trial himself uh, and uh, documented all that happened there, published it. So the trial was uh, controlled by the FSB because it was kind of anti-terroristic. So they wanted to do it very quickly, and they were very, very angry that someone wants to make it public and criticizes them. So the motivation here is pretty clear. Um, and what we see is that we uh, see several members of this killer squad that we already uh, knew, such as um, uh, Alexandrov and Osipov. Both, both of them are not just FSB officers, but they also have medical education. So uh, that's not like people who are just following activists. No, th- these are just experts on poisons. They also were those who poisoned Alexei Navalny. So the, these people, uh, with uh, several other FSB officers from another service, which is called, ironically, uh, Service for Defense of Constitution, uh, they um, uh, went to the region several days before the murder. And they actually, we see that they have tickets on the uh, 30th of July, and then they change it on one day, uh, like uh, postpone one day. And um, Timur is uh, murdered on uh, 31st, so there, there cannot be just a coincidence. Um, so what what we know about this his last day is that uh, it was evening and he wanted to go to theater where um, his mother wa- was an actor. So she called him half an hour before uh, the play and he confirmed that he's going to 
uh, watch it. After that, he went to the street and met two people, uh, and uh, it looks like he was acquainted with them because witnesses say that he uh, embraced them as like as he already knew them uh, when he met them, and then he went somewhere there with them together, and um, it looks like he um, didn't think that it will last long because he. Uh, took only keys and didn't even look his cell phone that he usually always take with him. Uh, so he went somewhere and uh, then he, uh, as as we now understand, he sat in a car with them. Again, that must mean that he knew them because uh, his relatives said that he would never sit in a car with unknown people. So he sat in the car possibly just to talk with them. And uh, next morning he was found uh, murdered uh, in uh, uh, suburbs of the city. So it means that uh, he sat in the car and the car drove him uh, several kilometers away from there. And all of this, uh, on, on this on way, there must uh, have been like four video cameras uh, shooting everything that's going on, but all of them were switched off. And officially is uh, because of some um, technical problem and we already know from the previous investigation that they usually switch off the cameras when they kill someone and Kudryavtsev uh, when he one of the murderers one of the poisonous Kudryavtsev when he spoke with Navalny in this famous interview when he, when he thought that he is making a report for Kremlin uh, officials so when he spoke with Navalny uh, he said that they always switch off cameras uh, when they operate so there no evidence from video cameras, um, a dot um, under his arm that looks like a, a trace of um, injection. And officially he had, uh, I don't remember, something like heart attack or something. And um, also um, when uh, you look into his uh, telephone metadata, you see that officially there is no phone calls or SMS or something. But even in official documents, uh, like uh, in uh, the Premier during official investigation, there are several SMS. And of course, he called his mother on the phone. So there must be calls. And there is nothing. So they just eliminated all the traces of his phone calls. Uh, also, uh, they didn't find his keys that he took with himself, um, which means that they possibly, uh, after that, went to his house. Also, his flashcard disappeared that was in, in his laptop. So possibly they stole his um, flashcard too. So uh, the, the most cynical part of this uh, is that when his father, who has also, um, he, he, he worked as a policeman in Soviet Union, he has very big ex experience as, um, as a detective on his own. So he uh, did a lot to find the killers and he insisted on making an official test his blood, I mean, uh, his son's blood. And you can guess uh, who made this uh, test. Of course, uh, this scientific institution where these poisoners work. So the murders made this test on, on their own and said that they can't find any poison. So they've first uh, kill people and then send uh, their parents uh, official uh, documents that they can't find any poison. So it's like, sounds it's like terrible. 
It's so cynical. Yeah. So it's like Stalin's era style. And um, we, we don't have so much evidence about um, Ruslan Magomed Ragimov, uh, but we also see one of the poisoners, Osipov, who went on this concrete several days when uh, Magomed Ragimov was murdered. There also there are two traces of injection in his neck. And um, we also see several other poisoners who came to Mahachkala, which is well, right near Kaspisk, like several kilometers near Kaspisk. They came uh, right before the poison. Theoretically, that can be coincidence, but we just don't believe in this. Also because injection poisoning is not how people are usually murdered on North Caucasus. So there are people are murdered often, but not that style. That's what I found uh, so interesting. I mean, Russian intelligence services never really have a problem of just murdering people in broad daylight using guns or uh, more obvious weapons. Why poison? Well, uh, they sometimes use guns, um, as it was in uh, Berlin when they killed Hangashvili. Zelim Khan Hangashvili was a Chechen army commander during the Russian-Chechen wars who claimed political asylum in Germany in 2016. He was shot dead on the streets of Berlin in 2019. His murder was linked to the leader of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov. One of the uh, murderers participated who actually shot Hangashvili. Uh, he was um, working for FSB and also he was a killer, so he also worked at the same time for criminal groups. So sometimes they use these um, criminals with some experience of working for security services uh, to kill people inside and outside Russia. But this time, I think that they just wanted to make it sound like uh, a natural death. Because if it is, if it is uh, a murder, if someone is killed with a gun, you legally have to investigate this and um it uh, and if if and it, if it is discovered you, that um the gunman was from fsb this creates a lot of problems of course but if it is a poison that is very difficult to detect and you suppose that no one will really look for it because you control this situation how it was with timur when they made um, um, test the blood test on, on their own. Uh, so they, they think that this is very convenient. And um, even if people understand that this poison uh, was a murder, and uh, even if someone supposed that these were security services, even in, in this situation, it is okay for them because they need to be officially out of this. But if someone supposed that this is them, uh, well, it's, maybe it's even good that, that they will be afraid more of them, of these people. So that's their style, and uh, this is not a new thing, because they used um, poison against um, oppositioners and their enemies for decades, even in the Soviet Union. So this is their modus operandi. I mean, uh, KGB and FSB recently. Um, so they, I think that they treat it as normal. Only now when it became public and it became in the middle of world's attention, um, 
possibly only now they understand that this is something actually that cannot be considered normal. But um, this, all these years when they did it, I think that they thought, thought that this is a normal part of, the, of their job. So they don't question them, themselves, I think. And uh, I think, well, all of these murders, uh, these alleged murders, they're quite different. Uh, like, for example, with Nikita Isaev, he was actually kind of pro-Kremlin at a certain point. Uh, what do you think these murders tell us about the fears of power holders in the Kremlin? Um, well, Nikita Isaev, uh and his case, that this, that's very, very difficult to explain, actually. And uh, when we asked his um, relatives, friends, his uh, political partners from political party, uh, he, well, it, it, for, for them it's very difficult uh, to have any explanation what could he have done to become such an enemy. Because they say that even if, for example, even if he did something too, uh, too bold politically, because he pretended to be kind of political activist who was supporting ecology in different regions, but also he was used as political spoiler against uh, Navalny. And um, uh, he, uh, so one of the official political parties uh, called Fair Russia uh, was preparing to make him a candidate for state Duma. So he was like part of the system. And uh, all his friends say that if, if uh, someone from administration of the president, for example, would say that like, you must drop this topic and never discuss this or that, he wouldn't be like second Alexei Navalny. So that cannot be explained by, by, by his political activity. So there must be something else. Uh, and um, we don't know what is it. We only can speculate about some theories. One of the theories that we are thinking of is that he was not only a politician, but he also worked for um, Russian security services, possibly for SVR, which is Russian Foreign Intelligence. Uh, we see that he made a lot of regular trips abroad, like possibly once a week, like very, very often. It was um, a very good cover for working in SVR. Although his uh, wife and his partners, no one knows anything about this, and they seem to sound very uh, sincere because they seem also want to uh, find the ki um, killers, but they don't know anything about this work on security services. And uh, but but if if he was just hiding this, if he really worked for SVR, for example, that is possibly that at some point Kremlin thought that he is a traitor and that he is prepares is preparing some treason or already cooperating with some security services from other countries. In this case, uh, um, that is pretty possible that, that, that we use poison against him and kill him. For, uh, some of his friends say that since June he felt uncomfortable and he spoke about possibility of um, or bringing his children abroad, uh, to live abroad. Uh, but he never said that uh, I'm afraid of something or, or that there is I, I'm doing some, something risky. He never said it to his family or to his friends. So uh, this is just a speculation about like this possible treason or, or his work for security agencies. 
So this is a very mystical thing. But anyway, we see that uh, this um, killer squad, they kill also people who are the part of the system, um, which is interesting, which is also a signal to, to the system that uh, the system starts to eat its own children. And I absolutely have to ask, because many listeners and many of your readers will be very curious, how exactly did you uncover all of this? I mean, I know that magicians can't give away all of their tricks, but can you spill something about your methods of investigation? Well, they're absolutely open, so we have absolutely nothing to hide. Um, we use data of um, flights and all, all the travels. So there is a database, travel database mm-hmm. where you can see how person traveled. Um, and this database, some of them are already leaked and existing offline. Some of them you can access through um, sources and um, Bellingcat has several sources that can find this data. And another very important part is cell phone database, uh, cell phone metadata, which is uh, both metadata of phone calls. So combining these two metadata, uh, these two databases with uh, speaking with relatives and uh, friends of the killed people, also looking into the official documents of investigation of these deaths, uh, you can uh, uh, understand uh, all all the story how it looked like. So, but mostly we base our investigation on uh, facts, on uh, things that are not uh, dependent on uh, some sources. That, but but what what is uh, what, what what is like digital traces of uh, these people? And uh, we just see that. Um, for example, if we take Nikita Isaev, that when he traveled in different regions, which he, he did constantly, uh, that we see seven cases when the killer squad went to the same cities, to the same days with another flight. Absolutely the same uh, modus operandi like with Alexei Navalny. And that absolutely cannot be explained by um, anything else than um, assassination attempt. This is the, just uh, the mm, likelihood theory. You can't, you can't just uh, in, mm, you, you can't suggest any other explanation here. So that's why we 100% sure that these people participated in the poisoning. We can only doubt about their motivation and uh, who gave the orders. Mm. That's the only like space for uh, speculation. And uh, there's been loads and loads of investigative blockbusters coming out lately. I mean, I think it's the right word for it. You know, we have Navalny and uh, releasing this incredible film about uh, Putin's palace. I mean, obviously, the information, some of it was available in the past, but I think the visualization and the video just made it much more impactful. You have uh, uh, this other media uh, project uncovering Putin's secret daughter and... um, and, and her mother, a potential secret daughter, and OCCRP and their revelations about Putin's uh, former son-in-law and and his investment and fortunes. And of course, uh, the insiders and Bellingcat's discovery of Navalny's murderers, which was just so impressive uh, to watch and to read. Uh, 
why do you think so many investigations are coming out so close to each other? I mean, it's almost like there was this database that just exploded and just started giving away all this information. How would you explain that? Is it just a coincidence? Well, no, the, the, uh, there was a very clear trend uh, of developing Russian investigative projects. Uh, and uh, the insider is one of the most experienced here, I think, because we started in 2000. 13 and we developed um, very quickly into the possibly one of the major investigative projects in Russia. But after that, there appeared several others, um, like several years ago, they, uh, there appeared such um, outlets like The Project or The Bell, uh, also Vajne um, Istori, like important stories can be translated. Um, and also there are some old school media like Nova Gazeta, for example, all of them uh, are making investigation also based, based on uh, uh, these new technologies, using databases, big data, using, I don't know, drones, etc., etc. So uh, there are actually two trends like this uh, new investigative media projects appearing and also developing of new and new methods of providing investigations through digital means. So they become stronger and more numerous. Uh, these new uh, investigation projects, they, of course, uh, finding new and new interesting revelations. Uh, and I wouldn't say that uh, they, they didn't exist before. Like, for example, our investigation on Skripal was also was very popular and uh, Navalny also had very big investigations on Dmitry Medvedev, for example, and his palace. So even several years ago, we saw a lot of investigations, but now we see uh, also several other young groups appearing. They're also making their interesting stories. Uh, previously, investigations uh, were provided usually by very big media outlets like Forbes or Kommersant, Vedomosti, RBK, these are very big corporations that were focused mostly on um, like commercial part, like big companies and um, or on politics. But now uh, situation changed. All these uh, big corporations are destroyed by the governments. And that possibly played a, also a good role because all these new projects, they started to do what they really wanted to do. So, for example, um, Roman Badanin and Elizaveta Sitinska, they worked both for RBK and mostly they were making this stuff on uh, commercial companies and corporations, which was pretty boring for millions of Russians. But when RBK was destroyed, one of them uh, became editor-in-chief of uh, The Bell, another of so-called The Project, and now they're making very interesting investigations uh, on uh, also on politics, on corruption, on Putin's daughters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's um, very interesting. So uh, this yeah. kind of censorship actually untied their hands in some way and uh, um, actually forced them to do something that they always wanted to do, which shows uh, just resilience and bravery in its own way. I think, and I think that's what. Um, What's so striking about all these investigations, you know, your investigation and the violence is just just the sheer bravery of it. That's very impressive, you know, to people outside of Russia, people living in Western democracies. And 
now as we speak, there are activists and journalists all over Moscow, all over Russia that are being arrested and put on trial uh, for some, you know, for basically for nothing. Uh, and given all of this, do you, f- and, and given your revelations that are just, um, you know, it feels like it's, it's definitely going to be a nuisance for quite a few politicians. Do you feel safe in Russia? And do you think this crackdown on independent voices is likely to get worse? Uh, no, I don't feel safe at all. And I indeed think that uh, this uh, pressure on journalists and activists will be tougher. Um, so this battle possibly is only starting. Um, and um, uh, I think that journalists are a little bit in a privileged situation in comparison with activists because most of the people who are now um, under all these criminal uh, trials are activists. We see only one journalist, Sergei Smirnov, who is editor-in-chief of Media Zona, uh, and is very worrying precedent of um, a journalist who didn't do anything criminal, but who is now uh, investigated on some uh, absolutely fake criminal charge, which is, uh, uh, he even can't be arrested because of this, because um, he, uh, there is no such a penalty in criminal, uh, under this criminal uh, article. But um, still, this is a sign that they are starting pressure journalists too. So, yeah, I think that um, this is very possible that Putin will go Erdogan's way. Uh, and uh, as you may remember, Erdogan arrested thousands of, yeah, of course, journalists of and activists who still are in prison. And it looks like Europe already forgot about this because no one even discusses this anymore. So uh, for Putin, it is possibly a signal that if he feels some revolutionary pressure, he would just do the same. And he now indeed feels uh, this pressure because uh, big protests started. So yeah, he feels the pressure and uh, I think he can defend himself with this mass arrests. Uh, And only people will decide. If if there are millions of people who would go to the streets defending their journalism, activism and themselves, uh, that possibly can change the situation. So we'll we'll see what happens. And that's something that I, um, just building on something that you just said. Um, so the Insider and Bellingcat seem to, and, and many similar um, projects and media outlets really seem to kind of have pushed the boundaries of what it means to be a journalist. You're not just, you know, sitting there and interviewing people. It's a very complex operation and you've been compared to detectives in the past and um, your achievements were called more impressive than, um, uh, you know, various intelligence services and so on. You have all this evidence, right? Um, you've collected all of this evidence that points fingers at, at uh, you know, at, at murderers, but it doesn't really go anywhere um, because it just ends where it begins with denial. And um, there's so much as the West can do, but you nonetheless carry on your work what are you ultimately hoping to achieve with your investigations and what motivates you? Is there a kind of end goal that you have something that, that, that you'd like to see happening? Well, um, last Saturday, uh, I, as a journalist, uh, was making um, a report from protest rallies in Moscow. There were 20,000 of people 
who went uh, in support of Alexei Navalny, who's now arrested. And uh, there were dozens of people who came to me just to shake hand and th saying thank you for your investigations. So for me, this is uh, already an important result that we see millions of people. And this is this is a really big audience. I mean, like Navalny's uh, YouTube, um, um, Navalny's YouTube video where he uh, tells about uh, his poisonous had uh, dozens of uh, millions of viewers. So I think that like really now knows the results of these investigations. Uh, and uh, that shapes um, people's opinion uh, on politics, on Putin, uh, that, uh, of course, uh, influences legitimacy of Vladimir Putin and his political regime. And that doesn't mean, of course, that uh, dictatorship will be overthrown automatically, but uh, it is still very important for people to understand in what country they are living and understand who is the president of this country. Uh, possibly uh, still uh, Putin will be successful enough to suppress all the protests and uh, to restore a Soviet-style regime in Russia. We, we are not magicians. We can't just uh, make a revolution with several uh, investigations. But we know that without this kind of investigation, without media, uh, it is almost impossible to influence the system. So we're doing what uh, we can do, that we, we must do. And uh, all the other part is uh, on uh, Russian people and how they re react. Investigative journalism is important now more than ever. During the wave of protests in Russia, thousands of people were detained, including over 80 journalists. Silencing of the media is becoming a worrying trend and it's likely that it will only get worse. The investigations that Raman and his colleagues produced are possible partly because of the public donations. So, if you want to support Russian independent media, I urge you to donate a little something to The Insider or any other media outlet of your choice. It can make a massive difference. <laughs>